Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. GM, I'm Dan Roberts. I'm Stacey Elliott. I'm Andrew Hayward. I'm Kate Irwin. And I'm Stephen Graves. And this is GM from Decrypt. Okay, GM, GM, Stacy, welcome back. Thanks. Good to be back. Kathleen Brightman today of Tezos. She is the co-founder with her husband, Arthur Brightman. And Tezos, it's been an interesting journey. I mean, an early, early blockchain uh, dating back to 2015 or 2016. And yet, um, and in an interview with Decrypt a year ago, uh, Kathleen kind of acknowledged or agreed with this herself, but... Uh, maybe sort of faded away for a while there and now trying to return to the crypto consciousness. Yeah, I mean, I've heard her say before, and I do want to ask her about this, you know, just they're not as out there with having a narrative and having someone who's kind of the face of Tezos. I mean, she, she has famously said her and her husband don't have special weight in votes on when they're trying to decide things mm. for the blockchain. So it's it's a really interesting way they've set things up it has almost guaranteed that they're not kind of the center of like the big narrative and, you know, all of that. But I mean, they're still here. Yeah. Maybe it's like a slow and steady wins the race in the long run type of scenario. Uh, I remember our story from a year ago about kind of a Tezos comeback. The way we phrased it was, if anything, it might've had an early lead on Ethereum and then it kind of blew the lead. Um, And so we can ask her about, you know, getting the name out there, They've been really big on, you know, we are actually decentralized. And as you and I know, how many things have claimed to be decentralized and they're not really. Yeah, it it just, I feel like we've asked this of everyone, but it's just interesting hearing that, you know, how much decentralization is real and and just kind Mm -hmm. of getting the different perspectives on it because we see time and again things that we think are sufficiently decentralized or not. And they can be taken out by one player, one node, one whatever. So it's, I, I think it's especially important that we talk to her about that. You know, they, they make decisions like what would be the equivalent of the Ethereum merge based on votes, not, not because, you know, a couple of core developers think they should. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. And then of course we haven't even said yet, but we'll have to start with FTX. Uh, I mean, and Kathleen is always good for a spicy take. Uh, so, you know, what's her reaction to the mega crisis that we're currently living through. And, um, you know, this episode comes out in a week after we record it. What will change in a week? Because every day this this thing continues. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we even asked her on before we knew any of this was going to happen with FTX. But, right. you know, it's impossible not to start with it. So, you know, so be it. Yeah, yeah. Let's get into it. Cool. Well, we'll bring her on. Okay, Kathleen Brightman of Tezos, GM, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Wild times. May you live in interesting times, right? 
so much to talk about. We want to ask you about Tezos and, and what's new with you guys, but have to start with the news in the industry. Two weeks of madness after the FTX collapse, and obviously uh, this will come out in a few days, and there's still much more to come in terms of contagion and more news from other players. But um, just top level, what are your thoughts as you've watched the past two weeks of news in the industry and all around us? Um, couldn't have happened to a nicer group of people. Uh, so, I mean, really, this is, this is a pretty epic bottoming out um, of an exchange that it turns out was built on like really faulty premises. Um, and, uh, you know, for the last two years, it's been a little bit maddening because um, I suppose when uh, Sam Bankman freed and FDX kind of came on the scene, there were sort of happy warriors, like they're making really aggressive plays to like scoop up companies that weren't getting like a lot of profitability, but were getting a lot of traction. And so I thought that was really, you know, it's novel, it's aggressive. Um, I, it made me think that maybe, uh, you know, I was doing something wrong, right? Because uh, basically the Tezos Foundation and, uh, you know, the sort of Tezos ecosystem has been sort of reticent to do these sort of ham-fisted, heavy valuations, uh, heavy, um, like pre, pre, pre-product, pre pre-revenue um, um, sort of venture deals. And so I felt like I was taking crazy pills um, uh, because, you know, this person had been anointed kind of, um, you know, the new hot thing and raised $1.8 billion in funding in kind of a, a record speed. And then I guess like when I started to like kind of doubt that narrative was, was in May of this year when Luna fell um, in effect, because, you know, that had been a Ponzi scheme or at least openly a Ponzi scheme. And, and my husband and I had both called that out in some form or another in pretty public forums and had been castigated for it, frankly. Um, and this was sort of a, a watershed moment for me to see like who kind of came to the rescue of that. Um, and maybe unsurprisingly, like, you know, sort of the FTX, uh, like Hydra, um, started to get really heavy into deal making into what I thought were like really poorly, fundamentally poorly built businesses. Um, and it made me second guess, like both the intention and the morality of, of them as a business operator. And it also kind of like gave, gave me a, a sour taste in my mouth. Um, so that's when I started to turn my tune. So it's, it's been very shocking to see the way in which they have failed, um, or I guess gone, gone down, um, over the last, uh, two weeks, but it's also been, um, I think a good moment to see that like the fundamentals of this business do have to rely on something other than like really aggressive deal making and sort of the centralized nonsense that we saw in traditional finance. So I want to ask a, a follow-up to that. And you kind of called out two, I guess, very extreme kinds of deals they were making, both um, the very aggressive ones that they were doing that kind of seemed to give them an edge in the beginning. And then, you know, towards the end, some of the ones that just perhaps seem ill-advised or not well thought out. Um, do you think there's space for, you know, the really aggressive ones anymore? And what do you think we can learn about some of those ill-advised ones going forward? Yeah, I think it's a different inflection points in their business uh, uh cycle so like they acquired blockfolio which i don't think is a bad company at all in fact i really quite like ed Moncada, who was one of the founders of it and i used the app a bunch when it was like pre-ftx um and that had broad reach i don't think it was ever going to be profitable but it had broad reach and so if you're trying to get on people's radar really quickly um just like business case study like 101 type of thing um you want to pick something that has a broad distribution first and try to find inroads to that I'm not sure if they ever effectively monetized any of this, um, but uh, I, I do think it was a clever it was a clever um, uh, approach. Another thing that they did super early on was like they acquired companies that already had existing licenses in you know kind of uh, difficult jurisdictions to find licenses, um, and so that was also clever. If you think about again distribution, um, bailing out 
BlockFi, uh, you know, seemed a little bit different, um, but it seems that they did that in their proprietary token that they own most of the reserve for, um, which should strike, you know, someone with a, a degree from MIT as like not a great idea to, to basically put all your eggs in a basket that's like in a momentum driven market, um, largely, uh, you know, largely um, predicated on like people still going up, up, up. And then the second it goes down, your entire <laughs> reserve being written off to zero um, almost instantaneously. Like that, that's not so clever. <laughs> it, it's funny, you know, you, you hearken back to Terra as sort of the moment and maybe the bailouts were a warning signal. But in some ways I've been saying too, that even though it was two very different things, one was an algorithmic stable coin, call it a Ponzi if you want. The other was a centralized exchange. The similarity is in both cases, one organization was saying, well, we're good because the value is pegged to this other thing, but the other thing we just made up, you know, oh, in, in UST's case, well, don't worry, it'll hold its peg because it's backed by Luna. Well, what happens when Luna collapses? And right. same in a way with FTX and FTT. Um, mm -hmm. We've talked a little bit about the sort of warning signs with the company and the, and the business side. What about like Sam and his persona? Um, and specifically, I want to ask you about like DC, because you guys have been in this industry a long time. And I know you've... Um, Put, put work in, in DC, so to speak. And Sam kind of very quickly, and I'm not even just talking about the, the donations, you know, everyone has made a big stink in the um, aftermath about the political donations, but specifically just his trips to DC, um, testifying, whining and dining congressional staffers. What did you make of all that during and what can we take away from that? I mean, are we now back to like square zero in DC as an industry? Yeah, I mean, so it's funny, I, I was um, just reminiscing, I've actually lived abroad for the better part of five years. So truly, I'm not really much of a DC insider. But um, I guess if you, given that he was vaunted as this figure who was like a serious person, whereas everyone else in the industry is um, painted as some sort of whack job um, Looney Tune, um, it was it was kind of beneficial that there was at least one person who was seemingly um credible in the eyes of people who do have the ears of lawmakers and people who who incorporate policy um yeah a lot of that goodwill is is gone now that um basically um it's proven to be shown that ftx was run more poorly than most of the other um large exchanges which are onshore um in the u.s um you know say which you can criticize coinbase until you're blue in the face but this type of stuff doesn't happen with um, a publicly traded company that's audited by by credible third parties. Um, it just doesn't dip into the piggy bank. That's been, you know, that's been a, a version of fraud, um, basically since um, laws of laws around financial firms have been enacted, <laughs> which which spans over a hundred years. So it's like this is not this is not even a novel. This is like a Whitman sampler of like dumb crap you shouldn't do in a business, like that are illegal and terrible. Like pick your 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 pick your flavor of um, deceit. Um, and it's somewhat represented in this. So it's almost like flabbergasting the extent to which this delved into um, the different um, psychologies and the different like sort of orifices of um, the cryptocurrency space. But all it's to say, it is remarkable the credibility that Sam was able to get over the course of a very short period of time that like, you know, Jesse Powell and, and Brian Armstrong had like struggled to, to maintain in the like, well, I guess nine years that they've, um, run businesses that for all accounts, whether you like them or not, um, have never have never really had uh, the sort of spectacular failures that we've seen, we've witnessed over the last two weeks. So um, what so do you think the industry can do? <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I wanted to ask what you think the industry can or should do to try to get ahead of what's going to be this huge, like regulatory backlash, like so many people are 
to use the analogy, basically calling for blood in DC right now. You know, they're they're furious that this happened, especially that it's coming from someone like you pointed out, was there spending time with them and testifying and helping educate people there. You know, is there anything that folks can do to try to kind of like get ahead of what's going to come? Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, honestly, I wouldn't even know where to where to begin with this. Um, for me, I, you know, I think that the initiative I've been most associated with was the Proof of Stake Alliance, uh, or is the Proof of Stake Alliance, which is basically trying to um, force regulatory clarity uh, through basically like um, interactions with like things like the Treasury Department um, and, uh, and and kind of taking it from like a principled approach. I don't even know where to begin with, like what 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 uh, sort of the sham angle was for. Um, I do know that the next person who testifies in front of Congress about this should probably wear a belt. Um, but it, like that's kind of the beginning and end of my advice. Um, I'm not really I'm not really an insider or anything like that. I just think this is like such a it's such a shame because I've watched this industry um, both as a participant and you know it's kind of interested outsider um, for the better part of the last ten years. And we could have never imagined some of the like heights that it's hit in terms of like getting on people's radar. I mean, the mere fact that China's banned Bitcoin is like no better testament to like Bitcoin's um, uh, you know uh, reason to exist um, than anything else. Um, and the fact that they keep failing to do so is even more powerful, arguably. Um, and yet, like when it comes to Washington, when it comes to sort of um, uh, the sort of political campaigning around this, um, there have been so many good inroads and so many clever people who've been really trying to make it work. And then for every one of them, you've got an SPF who just like <laughs> is the, the proverbial turd in the punch bowl. Um, so it's, it's, it really stings. Like it's, um, so I, I can't really offer any constructive criticism other than, um, you know, choose your champions wisely. Although I will say this, like I do think a lot of this was made up by um, the mainstream media, mostly because Sam looks more like uh, kind of a typical founder, a tech founder, um, than, than your more ideological um, uh, folks who, who sit on, on the spectrum there. Um, and I think this was a, uh, as much about seeming patrician um, when other people paint crypto entrepreneurs as yahoos um, as anything else. Yeah, I think that's a good take. Um, one helpful way to kind of uh, put a wrap on the, this news portion about FTX and then also transition what you guys do at Tezos, uh, the, the crisis has been a chance for a few different groups to say, well, this is what we've always said, right? I mean, you mentioned, first of all, back when you know China banned Bitcoin, that being um, a positive proof of why Bitcoin is needed. This has been another case where you know, you look at FTT and all these other shitcoins and the Bitcoin maxis have said, well, Bitcoin continues to work as it's supposed to. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I first wrote about Bitcoin in 2011. And, and since then, the irony is with all the different things about you know, Ethereum and proof of stake and different smart contract blockchains, you know, Bitcoin hasn't really changed much, or at least the narrative around Bitcoin hasn't changed much. And that's what those people like. It's also been a chance for DeFi advocates to say, well, this is why you don't trust centralized exchanges, period. Even though I agree with you, Kathleen, about Coinbase, I think Coinbase gets to say, we're publicly traded, we're different, we don't do that with your funds. Still, the DeFi people say, don't put your money on any exchange, you know, use DeFi protocols, you can see what the coins are doing. The one problem with that moving forward is like, look, certain people, I used to say people of a certain age, but I shouldn't make it ageist. I mean, people of a certain tech savviness or lack of tech savviness, sorry, they're just not going to be able to use DeFi tools yet. The, the UX is just too high friction for them, you know, like, sorry, this is not the end of centralized exchanges. But I guess I'd ask, you know, where, where do you guys play into that? Is this a chance for you to sort of bang the DeFi gong again and say, well, we do DeFi governance, we're a smart contracts blockchain. 
and that and of course something like FTX would would be doing shady stuff behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean there are some there are some um, I guess silver linings to this from the DeFi perspective. Like um, I will say, you know, in terms of like uh, help, like with creditors, for example, in Celsius, like they're kind of shit out of luck. Um, whereas if there's some sort of programmatic way to like um, disperse with funds, like you know, that, there's no gaming that. Um, I think Nick Sabo of all people actually made a really astute point, which is like. Um, with smart contracts, you shift basically the risk from the front of the contract to the back of the contract. Like it's kind of, you know, possession is nine-tenths of the law. Um, you have to think about it as like you're shifting the balance of power um, from like sort of pre-litigation to post, right? Um, if you've got a smart contract that's just, it, it doesn't, it it just does what it's supposed to do or what it's told, um, that the onus sort of shifts. Um, I, having been in litigation myself, you know, I'll tell you that like, it's a lot easier <laughs> um, to, to kind of deal with things after after money's been dispersed than before, <laughs> um, especially if you're having contests over over like a pot of, of money in some form. So um, it's it's definitely one of those one of those things that can't be dismissed until you've lived through it. Um, I'm sure the creditors in Celsius are like kind of reeling that this wasn't um, programmed out and that, in fact, now they have to have all of their positions exposed in um, litigation that's probably going to go for years on end. Um, so all that's to say, yes, this could be a, a shining moment for DeFi. Um, the fact of the matter is, you know, there was a decentralized exchange a few months ago that um, was out of service because there was an AWS outage in, in Northern Virginia. So like maybe this is maybe this is a decentralization that we need, but it is a decentralization that we deserve. Um, and uh, and there is a little bit of amateurism that's still like ripe in the space. You know, uh, Sam Bankman Fried gave this like really damning um, interview with Bloomberg that in retrospect uh, should have been everyone's first hint that something was awry where he talked about money boxes and yield farming. And it's funny because I've been calling yield farming or borough's finance for like the better part of two years it's like the self-referential circle where there's um tokens that exist to be traded for tokens that exist to be traded and at the end of the day you know DeFi is a portmanteau decentralized finance finance is an activity for something into another it's not just like this recursive like function where you have tokens that are traded for tokens that are traded and if there is a wake-up call for this um uh, whole space i hope it's that like you can't just slap a token on something and make a sensible business model of it like that's in effect like what ftx was shilling and uh and it, you know I, I don't think you get credit for basically giving alcohol to alcoholics and just like um uh, uh, uh preying on sort of volatility junkies um uh at the end of the day because that's that's basically how you build a house of cards and that's most of what the DeFi space looks like i will say that if you take it to its extent you'll, you'll get like actually good things like obviously redeeming things for folks who um you know, in earnest are, are um, pledging money to a protocol and making sure that they don't have to go through litigation for years and years to get what's um, due to them, um, putting the onus on on the person operating the smart contract. Like that's actually, um, or who had created the smart contract, um, uh, that's actually like innovative in, in a novel way. How much further do you think DeFi needs to push or or kind of evolve to become more decentralized? Because there are lots of people who say the extent to which DeFi and just the whole decentralized space in Web3 is really decentralized is a bit of a myth. Because it, it feels like for a while now, people have kind of slapped decentralized and Web3 on things in hopes to kind of signal to all the DGENs that this is safe, we're not centralized. But then, you know, as you just said, AWS goes down and a bunch of stuff goes with it, even though yeah. it's decentralized. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's been a, a massive like decentralization theater going around and no no greater time do you figure this out than um, when things are not sexy um, and decidedly they're not sexy now. Um, basically, we've, we've had a lot of tourists in this space who've, um, you know, launched different tokens and then they have these like really aggressive programs that give high yields um, for people to participate in these ecosystems. And at some point uh, to use... I guess a Bankman Freedism, um, you know, the money box uh, goes out because momentum stops building up. And so we're seeing that go down now and, and the consequences of it are like pretty predictable from an economics perspective. Um, it's funny, like I've been in a few of these interviews and a lot of times people ask me the question, well, I don't associate, associate Tezos with DeFi. I'm like, good, you know, we <laughs> uh, a lot of the Tezos ecosystem is built on like um, doing things like security token offerings, which actually have some sort of underlying associated with them that like can't just be printed out of existence or um, just have like some sort of recursive, um, uh, you know, money function applied to them. Um, I'd rather work on like building ways to acknowledge and trade, um, you know, substantive assets than um, just sort of like playing around with like, if I can program a Ponzi scheme, can I like, you know, set it off into the wild and see how it goes, which seems to be a lot of the thinking behind, you know, un uncollateralized stable coins. <laughs> and, and unsurprisingly, that's why a lot of them are not doing so great. So with that said about the different narratives in the space, uh, is it a multi-chain future? And, and where does Tezos stand in regards to kind of, I guess, I don't know if you even think of them as competitors. I know that uh, the early kind of take on Tezos was that, you know, originally it might've even had the chance to come out in front of Ethereum. Um, when did you guys launch? 2016. And then maybe kind of um, for various reasons, Ethereum became the, the big number two focus. Yeah. So, so Tezos, the prevailing network was launched in 2018. Um, but the project itself came to prominence in 2016 because of the DAO um, hack, which no one remembers because everyone <laughs> has joined in the last two years, not in the last six. Um, that puts you firmly in the OG right. category, Dan, right. sorry to say. Um, but basically what the happened DAO. was um, Ethereum, the DAO, yes. Um, no greater sign that someone's like a, a true jerk than um, claiming a generic term um, for their project. But all that's to say, that was our first sign. Um, the second sign was that uh, these these Muppets uh, tried to basically like program a venture capital fund with like literally no thinking behind it <laughs> and took up, I think it was like 20 something percent of the Ethereum's market cap in one smart contract that they clearly hadn't audited. Um, and then when that was hacked, uh, you know, for $50 million, it like kind of cratered uh, a lot of momentum in the Ethereum ecosystem. Anyway. That prompted a conversation of whatever happened to those Tezos guys after all, because there had been a white paper release in 2014, um, which kind of predicted a lot of the, um, I guess, melees that happened post DAO hack, um, namely that of governance, like how do you fork and how do you decide who owns what um, in light of these types of disputes, um, which aren't purely technical um, and yet they aren't, you know, they're philosophical. Um, how do you adjudicate that? So that was something that was predicted by the Tezos position paper. Another thing that was predicted was the importance of formal verification uh, and, and you know, the risk for reentrancy bugs, which is exactly what the DAO hack um, was a product of. Um, and so all that's to say, it was a little bit of a Nostradamus moment. That got people um, chatting about Tezos. And so it prompted the team to try to um, launch a, you know, a version of the blockchain, um, which they eventually did. Um, and yeah, I would say like, you know, basically since 2018, we've been through like two bear markets properly. Um, I think a lot of the momentum was lost basically in, in because of the fact that like 
um, the narrative um, kind of got uh, lost in the midst of like a lot of L1s um, launching, other layer one protocols launching, um, which were all very te technically undifferentiated from one another. Um, and so it became kind of trivial to launch a blockchain in some form. And yet what took hold was narrative. Um, and because we don't have a sort of central figurehead who's like doling out a roadmap and tweeting about how it's going to be the best thing ever, blah, blah, blah. Um, we, we kind of, um, uh, Tesla's as an ecosystem sort of suffered from uh, a narrative, uh, a, a, I don't want to say it's like a narrative violation, but a narrative, um, um, uh, yeah, a narrative drift. Um, and so I, I mm. hope that, I always think about decentralization as an insurance policy, and you don't think about insurance until you have some sort of catastrophe. And if I have some sort of silver lining for this whole disaster around FTX, it's like, listen, I mean, for the last two years, everything that I've been told from people who I trust in the ecosystem was like, oh, you've got to be more like, you know, name your layer one that launched in 2019, 2020. And the the, the similarity between them and, and the difference from us is it tends to be that they have a figurehead who will like go to you and like teach you how to use their app and they will give you venture funding that has some sort of massive inflation that I don't think could ever be justified, bull market or bear market. And the difference between that and Tezos is like, a lot of it's just um, decentralization and tooling that, that has been the focus for the ecosystem over the last three or four years. Um, and my hope is that, you know, as, as people kind of fall back um, to earth in the way that they have expectations about um, this technology, um, it's, it becomes more about tinkering and more about um, hacking rather than um, who can get more venture funding into their ecosystem fund and who can kind of court very mediocre on average um, developers into, into like a cohort to say that they have X amount of developers. Like it's all been like superficial games um, that have been really easy to, to hack down to like uh, Quinn Market Cap getting, uh, you know, basically the thing to do with the last two years has been to um, issue a token, have like 99% in reserve and 1% float. <laughs> and that's how you get, you know, the implied, like absurd, you know, coin market cap valuation. And that's so easy to game right. that people should be wise to it. But like you see every single time you see these, these bull markets, you see different games for people to hack to give the perception of momentum and adoption. hundred uh, percent. I'm glad you mentioned the, the Dow hack, because of course there's still people who, and maybe they've just been drowned out by the noise, but there are people who think, Ethereum failed way back then, you know, by stepping in and saying, you know, we'll reverse the chain um, and kind of undo the hack. When we talk about decentralization and trying to make sure that it's actual, you know, decentralized governance, um, Stacy and I were recently at a SmartCon, a Chainlink event, and I interviewed Kane Warwick from Synthetics. And our assigned topic for our panel was um, decentralized governance. And he said pretty bluntly, he thinks it's actually gotten even worse in the last year, not better. Um, and you know the point he was making was in a, in a bull market, people stop trying to fix tools and they're not building, they're just going up, 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 up only. Um, he had some pretty harsh words too for like DAOs that use snapshot, which is just kind of surface level and that you could do even more true decentralized voting. But what do you make of that? Is that how you feel? And when we talk about governance, I mean, are, are people actually kind of working to make that happen? Um, I would say most uh, most projects that claim to have governance have like a very um really mouthed version of it um tezos has kind of the extreme maybe to a fault uh version of it meaning um things are only enforced by a, by a vote on the chain um a lot of a lot of blockchains and DAOs are run as like suggestion boxes 
Um, and that's not such a bad thing in the sense that like, okay, a vote's a vote and it's a ratification that like, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing legal, like there's no, no, no code forcing the US government to abide by these things. It's, it's a law, right? Um, and it's, it's not as programmatic, but you obviously respect it because it's the law. Um, so there's norms that people converge on so on and so forth. But um, what's cool about uh, doing this in a decentralized fashion with basically no point person just clicking yes and approving the vote in effect is that um, it's resilient to personalities. Um, and that's ultimately like what the Tezos position paper talks about is like, you don't want a gregarious developer um, to assume the role of like a Fed chairman. Um, and in fact, like, you know, then you're just trading one master for another, right? And arguably, you know less about um, programming than you do about um, like obviously like monetary policy, which has been around in some form or other far, far more than smart contracts. So, I mean, my take on it is like, a lot of this is decentralization theater, right? And that's where you see a lot of sort of DAO failures come in is like, all of a sudden it becomes like a school project. Uh, and when I was in middle school, I was always the person who wound up doing the work in the school project. So I'm very sensitive to this dynamic. Um, and it sucks to be the person doing the, the, the work in the school project. No one likes, you know, no one likes being that person. I for one didn't. Um, and that's the way I've seen most of these DAOs like fail. Um, it's like they basically act like a really crappy school project. Um, and uh, if you don't have any sort of way to al algorithmically or programmatically enforce the decisions made by the group, you're going to wind up with just trading in um, one gregarious character for another. And that's just, that's just like not a way to, to govern anything. So what I like about Tezos is that in effect, its governance model has a two phase vote. Um, I don't have any privileged position. My husband doesn't have any privileged position. Uh, the Tezos Foundation doesn't have any privileged position. Um, it's really done by like traditional, you know, appealing to, to folks who have a vested interest in the network, um, who own tokens, and and kind of um, this very gradual process of experimentation. And a lot of what I see with DAOs is kind of like it falls to one party to sort of adjudicate over these things, and usually their judgment is flawed. And usually, like when it comes to click the button, yes, uh, they they get a little entitled, right? Um, and that's the problem with with ultimately just devolving into like one person's governance. How do you fight against governance apathy? Because I, I have also seen that with some DAOs, and these are probably the ones that you would say, you know, ones that aren't running themselves very well or kind of fail and just have gregarious people driving the ship. Um, you know, I've seen that, you know, there's some things that pass with just not very many votes, but the timer is up and, you know, it passes. So uh, what what do you think is the, I guess, the remedy to to governance apathy? Well, in the Tensus ecosystem, we've had kind of the opposite problem. Um, people, uh, so we have like basically a target for participation. So it doesn't pass, a, no ratification passes unless you hit a certain threshold. And what we found is like, it's a target that moves up or down based on participation on uh, the last cycle. And in the early days, we had um, an issue where we had a super majority, super majority, and we, we kind of like wanted to get people to stop participating as much so that we did a reasonable target. Um, so like, I think what happens is when you actually know that your vote counts, um, uh, you know, and you know that that has to hit a certain threshold that creates a natural um, uh, cause for action around the protocols upgrade. Um, and we found that the more empowered people feel around that, the, the more they engage with the um, they, the more they engage with the prompt. And we've even had like one, well, we had one, uh, uh, I guess, proposal fail. Um, not because of misinformation, but certainly because of like kind of a version of 
some person's account and they thought one thing and we would contest those facts but like it wasn't a big deal that it didn't pass because the version of it passed the next time point being like we actually had traditional politics at play and it's kind of impressive that this person got the or one party got like basically the ratification to fail because um in effect like you know, you have to actually convince quite a few people and they're all distributed around the globe. Like it's actually a pretty, pretty impressive political campaign. Um, and again, not a big deal in the grand scheme of things, but it was a pretty impressive, um, it was a pretty impressive show of like independent thinking um, because, you know, uh, the Tezos Foundation had sponsored a number of different, um, uh, I guess, um, programming entities that had, you know, cited their their favor in one form or another in this. And actually some random community member was like, no, actually we don't think that makes sense. And, you know, kind of forced clarity upon the situation by by contesting it. So um, all it's to say, I think like, because there actually is um, a consequence to your vote and it's not just a, a suggestion box, people are automatically empowered. And then because you do a two-phase vote, meaning you uh, basically vote to test and then you vote to ratify, um, with using a supermajority both times, like that it is a tremendous amount of pressure for anything to happen. Um, and I think I think it's that empowerment that really leads people to engage in the process because I mean the reason I don't well, I, I, I don't vote in general in the US um, is A because of PJ Roark, it just encourages the bastards. And B, like I, you know, I'm registered in, in mostly states where like my vote doesn't count, like they're solidly blue or solidly red. <laughs> like, I don't feel like I'm doing anything. Um, and empirically I'm not. So um, I, I will say like, it's kind of ironic that I um, co-founded this, this um, uh, I guess, web-based project because my, my personal apathies <laughs> seem to conflict with, uh, seem to conflict with its entire MO. Although of course, if everyone said their vote doesn't count and didn't vote, then it would matter. That's always yes. Right? That that is true. That's how um, used to feel. So maybe maybe that should be living my in Massachusetts, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, we always like to give guests a, a chance to talk up, you know, whatever the most recent news is. Um, so for you guys, there's uh, the Lima upgrade, as I understand it. I don't know if you want to just tell everyone what that means for Tezos. I saw supposedly faster speed, and then second part of that, in terms of news we've covered uh, a month ago, Robinhood added uh, the Tezos token, and I just wondered, especially like. You know, there's been a lot of crypto controversy about Robinhood and Robinhood's uh, place in the space, if people even view it as a crypto platform, but it obviously can be very influential what happens on there. Um, what has that meant for you guys? Does it add any scrutiny? Just good thing to be able to get into the hands of more users? I mean, any sort of mainstream adoption is probably a good thing for the Tesla's ecosystem. Um, I think, uh, you know, to my point earlier, it's it's been about everyone else has built this sort of narrative of inevitability and, and have, have done this like really aggressive sort of ham-fisted um, approach. And, and meanwhile, it's been very organic and kind of hunky-dory over on the Tesla side of things. So it's been more kumbaya than anything else, um, which is okay. But, uh, but it's definitely set a tone that Robinhood is not known for. Um, but uh, I wasn't really a party to that. Um, I think what I'm most excited about is over the next 12 months, we're going to um, we have reason to believe that we're going to hit a million transactions per second. Uh, that's been kind of a Skunkworks project going on in the background uh, with a few different uh, groups in the ecosystem. What's interesting about a million transactions per second is like, first and foremost, a lot more than Visa. Um, and we've been working with um, different gaming companies who've used the Tezos blockchain in some form or another and different stakeholders um, who have like large fan bases or large um, groups of consumers. 
And the one question you have with like, oh, hey, would you do a more radical version of this experiment um, is like, yeah, but you know, you guys can't handle our transactions per second. Um, and so this is, I think, the, the missing link between mainstream adoption and sort of your your wacky like um, you know blockchain lab sitting in the back of a bank um, and making it kind of um, legit is is unfortunately throughput. Um, and it's kind of a lame problem to come upon after we've we've dabbled in so many different exotic um, uh, things in this ecosystem, but I think it just comes down to capacity. And that's what's going to differentiate uh, the Tezos blockchain from other ones is that um, it's going to hit that million transactions per second in a decentralized way first, meaning no reliance on multi-sigs, no reliance on proprietary software, um, truly decentralized and like having an architecture that um, rests on uh, the participation of a community and not just like a select group of people who can be hacked or whatever, um, as we've seen with all these different bridges that have gone down. Yeah, we talked to someone from EY. I think he heads up blockchain for them who said that he's seen a lot of these big mainstream players say that they're trying to kind of get their feet wet in Web3 and, you know, working on blockchain, but it's always just kind of a side project. It's not replacing how they actually do business. It's not replacing all the other payment processors and, you know, different vendors that they use. It's, you know, we're going to give someone a you know a couple hundred thousand dollars and let them go play around with this thing. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't see, I mean, it's the problem is it's like also been around for seven years um, and we haven't seen anything radical. So I, I can't blame people for being dismissive at this point um, of, of the technology. And then you kind of look at what's happened over the last two weeks and it just looks it just looks foolish um, compared to, um, you know, compared to any other sort of centralized resource. So it's really it's it's, it's always been a tough sell. Um, and I think the last two weeks have made it that much harder. So on on things being that much harder now, I do want to ask about, I guess, how you think the industry stands with the SEC and Gary Gensler at the moment. Um, I don't know. I mean, we made him our person of the year last year, but obviously not because he's a cheerleader for crypto. <laughs> it's just because he has an enormous impact on, you know, the industry. And I guess you could probably even disagree with that. But, you know, where do you think things stand with Gary Gensler now? And, and is there anything in particular you're watching for coming from him in the SEC? You know, I, I, I think uh, just as much as anyone else, um, like people want to see clarity in the space. And that's kind of been the, the, the choir preaching um, from any entrepreneur in this space over the last like four or five years. Um, there's been a lot of legislation and different frameworks proposed, but nothing has been um, really adopted uh, widespread. I think there's some interesting um interesting and novel approaches that that could be taken um, by the US, but um, it's, it's, it's just been kind of like a wait and see type of thing. So who knows? Um, I think, I think we're all uh, uh, kind of waiting to see what comes out of Washington. Um, but, you know, there's, there's been good proposals by Senator Lummis and, and some other folks, which I think made a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Um, hard to say. Uh, but I don't know why, why um, picking on um, Gary Gensler over any other regulator would be would be you know, sensible. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, no, it's um, it's 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 a wacky space um, to work in right now, um, just because of um, sort of the spectacular failures. <laughs> so one thing I want to make sure I ask you about is the efforts you guys have taken to get your name out there, like marketing wise. Uh, a lot of sports things, which of course is also interesting. We can come full circle here. Uh, when you talk about FTX, I mean, they had spent a lot of money in sports. 
Um, doesn't mean it's wrong to spend on sports marketing, obviously, but I know you guys have a, you've got signage, uh, at the Mets games, which is really interesting to see. I didn't think I'd see a Tezo sign at Mets games. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, do you have data that, that shows whether that's been successful? I mean, how do you sort of assess, um, whether that's worth the spend? Um, yeah. So, I mean, to be candid, I don't work for the Tezos Foundation, nor have, nor have I ever. Um, so their efforts at marketing through the years um, are a thing that I don't necessarily own. Um, but I will say this, a lot of the deals that they- Are you consulted and involved? Nope. <laughs> um, I, in fact, I'm a diehard Yankee oh, fan, really? so you like... can imagine my discontent with this whole affair. But um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's uh, you know, if you ever needed proof that I don't control a Tesla's foundation, <laughs> look no further than the fact that I, I've been taunted nonstop by my mom's side of the family who are diehard Mets fans <laughs> um, over my, over, uh, o- over you know, the, the the stadium signage that says Tezo. So it's been a real, real affront to my pride there. Um, but, uh, but odds to say like, no, uh, I'm not <laughs> consulted. Um, I think, you know, basically what happened, if you look at kind of, um, the arc of this, a lot of these deals were brokered in the middle of the pandemic, um, and came to the fore when it wasn't certain if there would be, you know, for example, an F1 season in 2022, um, and if it wasn't certain if there would be baseball in, in 2022. So, um, a lot of them, I, th- I think, were, were um, like really sensible um, ideas from like a business development perspective and just in terms of dollars and cents. Um, I don't have the KPIs for sort of impact, but I, I will say that, you know, obviously there's very high eyeballs on it. Um, and uh, at least for things like Manchester United, uh, you know, obviously that, that spurred a lot of like global presence that, you know, wouldn't otherwise um, be facilitated by some sort of ad buying campaign through any other means. So it is, it is like a unique proposition and a lot of it was brokered at a time when I think the rates were competitive. That's interesting. And the second sort of form of maybe pop culture type stuff that I feel like Tezos has been associated with recently, um, NFTs and specifically music NFTs. And I know that's, you know, people can build on top of the blockchain, but I remember in Miami, maybe two years ago, I went to a uh, one of party and, you know, one of is doing music NFTs and they're built on Tezos. They had a uh, Pitbull come out and I just thought that was such a, a, a kind of funny crypto moment. You know, he, he came out and grabbed the mic and he was like, we're so blessed to be in Miami. We're so blessed to have Tezos NFTs, one of, and, and then he's like, good night, I'm out. And then he didn't even perform it. I was like, okay, that's, that's very funny. But um, yeah. I just, you know, the extent to which. NFTs are either they had their moment and it's wrong of people to think that they're dead, or maybe for now they are dead because the bear market's so bullish. I mean, what do you make of how it seems to be some of these smart contract blockchains, NFTs have been um, the more prominent use case in the last maybe year or so? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, sorry, just had their Q3 report on the Tezos ecosystem out today, and it shows that like Tezos NFTs have been minted at a higher rate than ever before. So NFTs might be dead on other platforms, but they are certainly not on, de- on Tezos. Um, I think that's because basically, for better or for worse, again, like going back to like the way that it grew, uh, the ecosystem grew, it hasn't been through having like, you know, VCs try to mark up uh, some dopey like marketplace at a bajillion, you know, 
uh, dollar valuation, pre pre revenue, pre everything. Um, it's really just been like artists come there and they kind of homestead or whatever the digital form of post homesteading is. Um, they usually like participate in the ecosystems that they collect on. Um, and I think that's a much more sustainable way to grow um, a, a community online than to just like try to will it into existence through sheer willpower and and marking up dollars. So if I had to give an attribution to why the Texas ecosystem has thrived in the NFT space um, over anything else, it's like by not trying to trying too hard and basically courting people who have participated in a wholesome way. Um, when no one else was looking and trying to like um, basically elevate those people and and not paying attention so much to folks who wanted um, like $20 million to integrate onto, you know, some dopey platform that has yet to get any traction. Um, so not playing stupid games. Um, what is it? Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Um, play stupid games, win, you know, win nothing in the in the bear market downturn. Um, so that's been, that's been like a big, a big part of the story is like, you know, I, if I see someone doing something cool or smart, I'll direct message them on Twitter and I'll basically say, like, how can I help you? Um, that's how Misson Harriman, like, wound up with the Tezos Foundation's, you know, um, uh, uh, permanent collection was like, he was really clever. He was organically um, organizing different members of the community in a very sincere way. He's an um, activist and a photographer. And I just basically met him and I was like, listen, however I can help you, like, just let me know. And he came up with a very constructive proposal that didn't really cost a lot of money at all um, and was meant to elevate um, un unsung um, folks in, in the art um, ecosystem on Tezos. And I thought that was a really beautiful message that sent a really good signal. Um, and so, you know, that's that's one instance where like, you know, I'm not I'm not a curator or anything like that, but like I, I know sincerity when I see it and I try to reward it. Um, by putting these people in, in touch with the right folks who can who can um, help them express themselves, and I think that goes a lot further than trying to like throw insane valuations at a yet built site. <laughs> I wanted to ask about what it's like co-founding a blockchain with your husband, because and I'll tell a really quick story. Today was one of the few days that my husband knew, like just by hearing the name, the company that we were talking to for the podcast today, because we are a Man United household. Ah. And I'll get a bunch of shit if I don't say glory, glory, Man United on the podcast right now. Um, so, <laughs> you know, so we're we're very much not, you know, two peas in a pod as far as crypto goes. Like it, it kind of just intersects when he sees it in F1 or, you know, English Premier League. So I, I'm curious to know, and, and I think it'd just be fun to hear about what it was like co-founding a blockchain, you know, and having a marriage too. Yeah. Uh, people always ask if me and Arthur met at work and I always laugh because that's the last possible place we would have met. <laughs> um, uh, I think it's like we're, we're married in spite of this, uh, not because of it, um, but uh, uh, it's, it's definitely a lifestyle choice. I had some nice young woman a few months ago ask me like, how do you do work-life balance when you're, you know, in a startup with your husband? And I'm like, oh, that went out the door a while ago. <laughs> um, don't don't go into this if you want work-life balance. Um, no, but in sincerity, um, you know, basically when you co-found something with anything with, with someone, you need to have like two elements, trust and communication. Um, by being married, we already have that in spades. Um, I find it really easy to communicate with Arthur. It, we joke that we have a shared brain. Um, and it's not really a joke because we like stumble upon the same esoteric like comments and we laugh and it's 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 a little bit of a mind meld um, and you have to be comfortable with that. 
Um, so one of the reasons we're comfortable with that is because I respect Arthur um, very much. And I, I um, if I have had one big silver lining over the last few years, it's that I get to learn more about someone I already really thought was super clever and, and fun to be around. Um, so that's the romantic part. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is like when you're in it with someone, like the highs are really high and the lows are really low. Um, and there is a bit of um, toxicity into the fact that you can't really escape um, work. Um, you know, Arthur had, was on a podcast at this point several years ago, and someone asked him the exact same question, like, what's the good part about founding this with your spouse? And he answered like, oh, at four in the morning, I can wake up and tap Kathleen on the shoulder and tell her about my ideas. And I said, that's the best part for you. <laughs> what's wrong with you? <laughs> um, that's like the worst part of it for me. So um, anyway, I think you get a lot of things for free when you go into something, any big, any big endeavor it doesn't have to be a business. It can just be as something as simple as starting a family, but it's, it's um, you know, anytime you are doing a big undertaking that requires a lot of responsibility, the, the things you need the most are trust and communication. And that's something that um, Arthur and I have in spades. We have a shared vision, which is obviously very helpful. Um, when we disagree, we, we've learned, you know, healthy coping me mechanisms to adjudicate, um, you know, who, who, who should do what, but overwhelmingly we, we have our roles and we are extremely complimentary. Um, I've, I know a number of people now because other like married couples will reach out to us when they've co-founded something together. And where it tends to break down is when two people have exactly the same skill set. Um, and they, they basically might have quibbling over things and they don't necessarily delegate well because they're both trying to do the same thing at the same time. Um, we've largely been able to sidestep that uh, in, in just by having a natural segregation, like my husband's an engineer's engineer, um, and uh, and you know he doesn't really try try to um, try to like endeavor and, and step into my territory, and I didn't try to step into his. So um, I think there's a natural symbiosis, and on top of that, we've got a pretty strong marriage at the foundation of it, which is uh, arguably like just as important. Very important. That's great, uh, Kathleen. Let, let's wrap up this way. You know, before we started recording, the three of us were just chatting about the whole FTX crisis and just how many people in crypto very seriously are, you know, in a bad place because of all this, uh, not just financially, but, you know, it's tough to see these meltdowns. What uh, keeps you building? What would you leave the listeners with in terms of why they should hold on, believe that crypto as an industry is going to grow and continue to um, achieve things and actually be of value? I mean, I, I say this often, but repetition doesn't spoil the prayer. Um, basically, I think that cryptocurrency solved a problem that we've been trying to solve for hundreds of years, which is how to exchange value with someone you may not know without the risk of or use of an intermediary. Um, I think that ultimately that lowers the ticket price on financial services. And that's something that's empowering for people, especially as we tilt into a world where, you know, a substantial fraction of the world is under authoritarian rule. Um, and uh, it's never been more important than ever to have some sort of sovereignty. Um, and I know that that's like kind of the wacky tinfoil hat way to frame it, but it's a very real problem for a lot of people. And this is a technology that uniquely solves that issue. Now, granted, you know, there's kind of the um, lighthearted fun way that it's been solving it, mostly through, you know, photos of cats and, and kind of um, wonky experiments. But the underlying um, thing that we're trying to build towards is actually extraordinarily practical um, and extraordinarily empowering. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us. And, you know, at at such an interesting and what feels like pivotal time for the industry, you know, I mean, we asked you on before any of this even happened or any of us knew it was going to happen. So, you know, it's it's good to get you on and just kind of rehash what's been going on. So thank you and excited to see what comes next for Tezos. Thank you. 
GM is a Decrypt podcast, co-hosted by me, Dan Roberts, Stacey Elliott, Stephen Graves, Kate Irwin, and Andrew Hayward, and produced by Zach Edelman. Make sure you check our website, Decrypt.co, whenever a new episode comes out for the video version, and subscribe to GM wherever you podcast. GM. GM.